Nothing is impossible with God. Problem is, since nothing is impossible with God, we kind of forget and we tell God what it is he should do or not do rather than knowing what the scripture says that God is able to do far abundantly beyond that which we can think or even dream of. And we limit God, at least we think we can, by telling him in our prayers, God, you should do it this way or that way. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but you know, we've all done it. And one of the things that we all tend to do is that Jesus' blood and sacrifice paid it all. And yet every once in a while, the thought creeps in that I need to do something to preserve or keep my salvation. And the truth of the scriptures and the gospel is there's nothing that you can do. It is Jesus' blood and sacrifice that paid it all for us. After Peter declaring probably on behalf of the rest of the disciples that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. We now come from that place to this, continuing in Matthew chapter 16, with verse 21, it says this, And from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he, emphasis, must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So after that declaration of faith, Jesus begins to tell his disciples more about the plan of God. And notice it says, show. And I believe what he's doing is he's taking the Torah and the rest of the Old Testament and showing them what must take place, what the prophets had foretold. Similar, if you will, to after the resurrection, the road to Emmaus, where Jesus shared all the things that the scriptures, and fortunately at that time, they said, didn't our hearts burn? At this time, it seems that there's this kind of dull understanding. And so he's showing them, and then again, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, after hearing this, Peter, from his background, says that doesn't compute because we believe, and many Jews of today still believe, and one of the reasons that they have problem with the Messiah is that the Messiah would never die. So their box is, Messiah never dies. Jesus is talking about his death. That doesn't compute. Therefore, it has to be wrong. So Peter took him aside. So at least he doesn't, isn't going to, to counterman Jesus publicly. He makes it a private conversation. So he took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now, I have the benefit of 2,000 years later. But trying to go back to the time where the disciples are learning of this, I kind of think that Peter's, first off, not asking the right question before he makes the statement. Because Peter has seen Jesus raise 
at least a couple of people at this point, from death. So my question to Jesus would be, okay, I've seen you raise the dead, but how is it that you being dead can raise yourself back to life? That seems like a big, and again, that nothing is impossible for God, but there is this, I don't care what you just said, it doesn't fit with my view of the world. And that's unfortunately what we oftentimes do with the scriptures. It doesn't fit with our view of the world, so therefore we reject it. Rather than pursuing questions that might lead us to faith, we simply reject it. So, mild and meek-mannered Jesus is going to say, no, Peter, you're wrong, let me show you. No, that's not Jesus' response. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. He's not even saying, Peter, you're wrong. He's saying, Peter, you're now on the enemy's side. I view you as Satan, that you are trying to prevent me from doing what it is that God the Father sent me to do. You're more concerned about your political power and the future and getting rid of the Roman government rather than what God's interests are. Now, interesting and good for us, oftentimes, God's interest is in our best interest. For you see, if Jesus doesn't do what he just taught his disciples and showed them that he must suffer many things and die and be raised again on the third day, we would be lost in our sins. It is in our interest that Jesus fulfill the Father's work. And Jesus is saying, I don't want any stumbling blocks to prevent me to do what it is the Father has sent me to do, even those who are my closest associates. So Peter is not only wrong, he's on the wrong side. Wow. Then Jesus is going to teach some more. And this is why I don't believe that those people who say that Jesus is a good teacher. Because this is something he's going to teach. And not even believers want to do it. Let alone those who don't believe that he's the Messiah. And just say he's a good teacher. Because notice what he then says. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must just as Jesus must, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is saying, discipleship is costly. That you must set aside your interests, your desires, your comfort, and follow him with your cross. Now, in our world, we wear a cross as jewelry. 
made out of gold or silver, and it's beautiful, and some even have diamonds and whatever. Um, but in reality, the cross was a symbol of shame because Rome developed this form of execution to do so publicly, to humiliate you, and to create as much pain and suffering as they can. So I know some have said, and that doesn't even kind of quite get it because it's over, but the cross is similar, if you will, to the electric chair. Except in the electric chair, it's a few minutes and you're gone. On the cross, generally it's a few days of constant agony and everyone passing by and ridiculing you and Rome making a statement, if you step out of line, this is what happens to you. And on top of that, the Jews believed to hang on a, on a tree meant shame and being accursed. So Jesus is saying, you want to be my disciple. It's not about what you want, but that you deny yourself to the point of considering yourself dead. Now, unfortunately, that is an opposite teaching in our culture today. Because in our culture today, it's all about me. It's all about my pleasure. It's all about what you think of me. And if you don't think good of me, I'm going to try to change your opinion. Because it's all about how many likes I get, how many approvals I get, how many friends I have on this website or this social media. And it's about me. And God says... Not if you want to follow Jesus. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is Crazy talk if he wasn't the son of God. But if he is the son of God, then he's revealing something. That this life is not all that there is. Too many times people follow the commercials that says we're to try to find all the gusto that there is. And Jesus is saying, if you give up your life in this life, for the sake of God, you will find eternal life. A life without suffering. A life without tears. A life without shame. A life without heartache. A life without death. An abundant life. But not the abundant life people think of that are here. We hear what people think, well, God wants you to be rich, and God wants you to be happy, and God wants whatever. Here's a homework assignment. Come to me with a passage in the scriptures that says, God wants you to be happy. I give you a little hint. It ain't there. But you can look for it. Because there are a lot of people who will say it and justify it. God wants me to be happy so I can leave my spouse. God wants me to be happy so I can do this or I can do that. 
And what God does say is, pick up your cross and follow me. Then he's going to ask a question that cuts right to the point. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The question is, if you get everything, absolutely everything that this world has to offer, you're richer than all the richest people combined. You own not only all of Southern California, but you own all the world. They have to come to you to decide who rents what space because you own it all. What will it profit if a man gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? With all the world's value, you still cannot buy a place in heaven. And then he says, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Even if you acquired all the world's riches, you would exchange that for your soul. But it wouldn't be enough. And isn't it interesting that we hear this and we look at this and we know the truth of it and yet we still try to gain the whole world. We're more concerned about our 401ks and our salaries or our social security or all those things rather than what's my relationship with God today? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Now, we don't like that phrase because we're convinced once we have our fire insurance that everything's hunky-dory, that we'll be in heaven, it'll all be great, we'll all be singing songs, playing instruments, or doing something. But notice he says that he's going to come in the glory of his Father with the angels and will then repay everybody but you. He'll repay the Gentiles. He'll repay the lost. will then repay every man according to his deed. Now, all too often when we see this, we then get fearful because we think we need to be good little boys and girls to enter into heaven. No, being a good little boy and girl does not cause us to go to heaven. The blood of Jesus and faith in him allows us to go to heaven. But what you do here, as a movie once said, echoes in eternity.
We do things for God because our love for God, and he will repay with blessing. We do things for God for our own interests, and we don't get a reward because we already got paid. Or we do evil and are unrepentant and have never come to faith and God will repay accordingly. Jesus' teaching is pretty heavy. Be concerned about what God's concerned about. And fortunately, by being concerned about what God's concerned about will ultimately be in your best interest as well. To be focused on God and his interests and not the temporary earthly things. Because in the heavenly economy, what's here on earth, on earth doesn't have any value. There was a joke that said that a man became very rich and converted all his wealth into gold. And they put it in his casket, which was very heavy. And they placed it in a mausoleum. And he was a believer. And he went to heaven. And he was able to take all the gold. And meeting St. Peter at the gate, St. Peter said, why'd you bring street material? And it's not even good enough. Because you see the Gold made of our streets is so pure that it's translucent. You can see through it. It's transparent. This has still got gold, so it's not even worthy of street material. And yet we're so interested in it. Then Jesus says the following, truly I say to you. Now when Jesus says truly, it's kind of like on the test. It's important. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Most scholars think that what Jesus is talking about is what is the topic of next message, the transfiguration. That may be true. I'm not a Bible scholar. I just pretend like I'm one. The problem is, for me, with that possibility, and it is a possibility since there's a lot of people a lot more smarter on scriptures, the transfiguration takes place in about six days. It just seems a weird statement that says, some of you will not die in the next six days. So he may be talking about that but I don't think so. So what is he talking about? Well, some say that they think it's at Pentecost when the power of God comes and the church is kind of kick-started, and that may be. There are some who think that has to do with the second coming, I don't see that as because I'm pretty sure other than Jesus, 
everybody standing there is dead now. So he says, some of you will not taste death. Now, it may be that there are those who will, like Stephen, be stoned to death for their faith and see the glory of Jesus sitting at the throne of God. And that may be what he's talking about. I think, and again, with a couple of dollars, you can buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks. I think he's talking about his resurrection and the subsequent coming. That the, at this point, they keep hearing about the kingdom of God, not quite understanding. Then they're going to see Jesus coming in power with that. So I don't know what he's talking about. Again, if you look at that it's the transfiguration, that's cool. Just seems like a weird statement. But when Jesus says truly, he's serious. We weren't standing there at this time. But Jesus has said, I am returning a second time. There will be a trumpet sound and the shout of the angels. And he will come with the angels and the dead in Christ will rise first. And those of us who remain at that time will be lifted up and we will be joined together with him. And it will be obvious that his kingdom has come. Right now, all the politicians think they'd have the power. And we know they don't because they keep lying to us. I don't care what party you're from, they all lie to us. But they're not in charge anyway. God is. And we need to understand that first, we need to be on God's side. Being on God's side means it's not all about me. It's about him. It's about what it is he's doing in this world. It's not about acquiring stuff. It's about seeing his interests promoted. It's about giving up what we can't keep anyway in exchange for what we can never lose. We can't keep our life, but he can give it to us. His formula is simple. Take up your cross, follow me, deny yourself, and I in turn will give you blessings you cannot conceive of and a life that's eternal. Or you can seek to try to gain the world, and at the end of your life, you'll discover you've wasted your time. Because even if you acquired everything, you couldn't change it or what it is you missed. And the awesome thing about God There are too many people competing for trying to gain the whole world. 
that you'll never be able to gain the whole world. Jesus tells us, narrow is the way and few who find it. So the competition is not nearly as great for those who are seeking God's interests. But you know the great thing is? It doesn't matter how many people are competing for that because there's room enough for everyone. That God does not have to expand heaven for one more person. So, acknowledge that Jesus, Yeshua, is Messiah, the Christ. Believe that he came, that he suffered, that he died, and he rose again, even as his teaching here. This is the first time he's made it very plain to his disciples the plan of God. They're having difficulty accepting it. For those who aren't believers yet, coming to that realization is awesome. For those of us who are believers, it's still awesome that the Son of God, that God himself, the one that made everything, the one who controls everything, said, my interest is your salvation. And all I ask is not for millions and millions and billions of dollars, but your faith and your trust that I, God, gives you anyway. How awesome that the gift of God. As Paul says, the free gift of God is our righteousness because of him. It is shameful that we're so concerned with our interests that we're not cognizant and always mindful of his. Because as I've said over and over, and I'll say one more time, his interests ultimately benefit us. And all God's people said,